Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. I'm going to be continuing on with our series today on James. You may remember Pastor Tony started this series two weeks ago. We had Mother's Day last week. And you may remember that the book of James is actually written by James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And if you stop and think about it, that makes sense. How many people here have an older brother? How many people would believe that that older brother was the Messiah, regardless of how good he had been? Not a chance. Not a chance. But after the resurrection, James realised, you know what? He's not just my brother, but he truly is the son of God. And so James was a leader in the early church, and he wrote the book of James, which is actually the oldest written book in the New Testament. And that being the case, James is actually addressing the earliest issues that the church was facing. You may remember Pastor Tony said that not everyone who grows old grows up. And James is trying to help us become spiritually mature. Pastor Tony spoke about or spoke from chapter one, and he spoke about the mark of maturity of stability and how we can have stability in a world of fragility. Today, I'm going to speak from James 2, and we're going to speak about the mark of maturity, which is faith. So if you would, (coughs) pardon me, who here has ever bought anything online? Anyone online? Anyone like shopping online? Anyone purchase something online, but what rocked up in the mail wasn't quite what was actually advertised? How many times have we gone to eBay and gone, oh, wow, that's amazing. I can see how that's going to benefit my life. Oh, buy now, buy now, buy now. And then we wait while Australia Post delivers it. Now, Australia Post always gets the blame, right? Right? There's that frustrating, come on, where, where is it? Come on, it's, I, I need this. And yet when it arrives, it just doesn't quite live up to what was promised. The pain, the frustration, the, oh, now I have to go and spend more money to buy the right thing to get what I want. For me, this happened a couple of years ago. I was buying an FM transmitter. Now, some people will go, what? That, that's, that's fine. When you drive an old four-wheel drive, there's no auxiliary port to plug my phone in. And so I bought a little device that plugs into the power socket in my car that broadcasts the music I want to listen to off my USB drive onto an FM station. 
and I can tune my radio in to hear the music that I want. And so finally this product arrived, I plugged it in, I have no idea what that thing was transmitting, but it wasn't good. I could hear my music under this digital static hum, and as soon as I plugged it in, my GPS stopped working, and my phone lost reception. Now, I don't know what that thing was transmitting, but I tell you, it probably wouldn't have been good for my health given that it was sitting, you know, just about there in my car. The pain, the frustration, the, ah, oh, you know what? Now I need to go and buy the same product from somewhere else, but now get one that actually works. You know what? Even in that, I think I got off lightly. I don't know if you've seen some online shopping fail pictures on the website, particularly when it comes to wedding dresses. Um, hint, if you're going to spend that much money on a dress, ladies, online is probably not the best way to go. But we realise that, you know what, a good ad isn't enough. An ad that moves us to go, oh, wow, I need that, isn't enough. You see, the product has to work. And it has to work for you and it has to work for everyone else. Because the reality is, is that we feel ripped off when something arrives and the product doesn't match the promise. And James is trying to get across to us today that the promise and the actions need to line up. And so, if you would, let's turn to James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, or you don't have it downloaded onto your electronic device, please uh, follow the scripture behind me. James 2, verse 14 to 26 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled 
that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Father, I pray that as we go through this morning, help me to explain this clearly. Father, I pray that you will also help us to understand what is being said and be able to apply it to our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This scripture has actually had a reasonable amount of controversy around it. There's been lots of debate around this scripture as to whether what James is trying to say here actually contradicts what Paul is saying when he says that you're saved by faith alone. And there's been lots of people smarter than me arguing over many years, centuries even, about whether there's even a contradiction here. To be honest with you, I don't see it that way. I don't see that there's any contradiction here at all. You see, James is not the only New Testament author that championed a faith that works. Paul himself, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, says, "It is For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God." Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. See, as clearly as Paul says, you know what, it's by faith that you've been saved, he immediately says, but then there's works to be done. See, It's not a foreign concept to us. You know, we see that we come to Jesus and it's a free gift of salvation. It's through grace, through faith that we go, oh, Jesus, thank you. Come into my life. But that happens in a moment. But then there's the flip side to the same coin, which once we've accepted Jesus, now we need to get to know him. Now we need to work out how to walk with him. And the reality is, is that only comes through works. It only comes through spending time with Jesus, in his word, with his people, that we actually get to be able to walk with him. And so there's always these works attached Again, it's not a foreign concept, even if you look in the natural. Let's look at the example of marriage. Now, recently, we celebrated with Dan and Ashari as they got married. It was a fantastic day. It was a great celebration. It was a lot of fun. And for everyone else who was married here, you may be able to remember back to your wedding day and say the same thing. 
at that point, it was a lot of fun. It was a celebration. We got married. But we also know that that's actually the starting point of the process. You see, the reality is, is that, yes, you're married, but to have a good marriage means that there's then work that needs to be done. For the guys, we need to work out what our new wife likes, and more often than not, that is the toilet seat down. (laughs) There's work involved, because it requires change, and change is often difficult. Yes, marriage happens in a moment at the ceremony, but a good marriage always requires ongoing commitment and work. It's the same example with children. I've got three great kids. They've been a real blessing to myself and Kathy. They have also been a whole lot of work. And when I say have, I mean continually. When they were first born, you remember... (coughs) Do you remember first having kids... A duck down to the shop that used to take 10 minutes took 10 minutes to get into the car by the time everything got strapped and put and pushed and in place. Things just took twice as long. Not to mention the nappies. No, don't, don't mention the nappies. And the toilet training, the work involved. Now, my children are past that, thankfully. However, there are still times that you walk into the toilet and the first word is, boys! There's work involved. How many feel like we're more our kids' taxi service than our parent at the moment? There's always a work attached. To have the blessing, we need to work the blessing to have the benefit. The next thing that I see from this passage of scripture is that I actually think that everyone has faith. You know, there are some people in this room who have faith that this year is the crow's year. There are some people in this room that, you know, the crows have got it this year. But yet there's other people in this room who are going, no, 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 no. You can have your faith because I've got faith that it's the powers year this year. For for some people in this room, they have faith that Holden is the best car that you can get. And there's some people in here that would say, no, 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 no. My faith says that it's Ford. And in both cases, it's it's okay. You're allowed to be wrong. We all know that Volvo is the best. For those who believe in Jesus, we have a faith that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour. And yet, in our world also, we have people who believe there is no God. And I would say that's also a faith position because you cannot prove that there is no God. 
And so therefore it's taken on faith. I believe that everyone has a faith position. Do you know that as you drove here today, you put your faith in white lines, lights and strangers? White lines, traffic lights and people you've never met before. When you put it like that, it's, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? And yet we put our faith in these things. I think that everyone has a faith position. The question is not, do you have faith? The question is, where have you placed your faith? And I think that James is outlining three different types of faith in this passage or three different areas where people put their faith, but not all faiths are equal. And so our mark of maturity is having a faith, not just having a faith, because we all have one. Our mark of maturity is what we have put our faith in. The first type of faith that James talks about in this passage is a dead faith. Twice in the scripture that we just read, James emphasises that a faith without works is dead. And once more, he actually says faith without works is useless. But you have to ask the question, well, what sort of faith is this that we're actually talking about? And the reality is, is that I think James is saying that people who have a faith based on intellect only is a dead faith. If you go back to the scripture, if you look at the response for the people who need foods and clothes, the response knew the right answer, be warm and well-fed. It knew the right vocabulary, go in peace. It knew the right theology, there is only one God. And yet, the faith is called dead. And it's called dead because it was intellect only. There was no walk to the talk. The product, when it arrived, like my FM transmitter, didn't line up with the promise that was given. The intellect only faith is dead. Just imagine for a moment that you've got a good friend and this good friend has just inherited a car. Now, this good friend comes up to you and says, oh, you should see it. It's amazing. It's red, two doors, four seats. It's powerful. It's comfortable. It's amazing. And your response, being only natural, would be, cool, let's go for a spin. To which they say, no, we don't drive it. We've put it in the backyard. But it's amazing. It's red. 
It's two doors, it's four seats, it's powerful, it's comfortable. That's a bit weird, right? Right? It's, it's a bit crazy. You've got this car, you've got this gift, and you stick it in the backyard. I think that's what James is saying about our faith. I think that what James is saying is you've got a dead faith when you talk about it, but you don't walk it out. You see, this is the kind of faith that we see that the Pharisees had. The reality is, as we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus interacted with the Pharisees on numerous occasions. And the Pharisees knew their scripture. By the age of 12, they would have memorized the first four books of the Bible. By the age of 15, they would have memorized the rest of the Old Testament. At the age of 15, they would present themselves to a rabbi and say, Rabbi, choose me. And for the next 15 years, they would shadow that rabbi. They would even physically pick up the mannerisms of the rabbi. They knew their scripture. They knew what they were talking about. They knew that a Messiah was coming. And yet when Jesus stood in front of them, they completely missed it. How does that happen? How can you know your scripture that well? How can you be fully immersed in it? And yet when the very thing you're waiting for is right in front of you, how do you miss it? Because Jesus didn't fit the mould that they were looking for. And so intellectually he didn't fit the mold therefore he can't be the Messiah an intellect only faith always stops us the Pharisees were diligent they were dedicated they were devoted and yet when Jesus addressed them he used his strongest words recorded In Matthew 23, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And further in the same passage, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Where does an intellectual faith take us? An intellectual faith always takes us to hypocrisy, making sure that the outside looks good whilst the inside is festering. Can a faith based on intellect alone save? James is very clear. No. No. Because the reality is, is that a faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that saves. And so it's having that living relationship with him. The problem with a dead faith is that it's a counterfeit. 
it lulls us into a sense of thinking that we have faith, even when we may not. You know, when I read the stories of Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, I like to think that I'm Jesus in the story, but the reality is I'm not. You see, the reality is, is that by nature, I would make a really good Pharisee. By nature, I'm a lists kind of person. I'm a rules and regulations kind of person. I'm a define where the boundaries are and I'm happy kind of person. By nature, I could make a brilliant Pharisee. And unfortunately, because we all have a tendency to drift, when I drift, it usually becomes more pharisaical in nature. When I personally drift, I often, often's perhaps a bit strong, but when I drift, this is the area that I end up. And clearly, it's not a helpful area. How do you know? How do you know if the faith that you've got is actually a dead faith? I'm going to ask you to consider a question. When you leave a sermon, when you leave a church service, when was the last time you walked away and went, oh, that was interesting, but did nothing with it? Because that's a key question to ask if you're slipping into a dead faith. When you leave a sermon, when you leave a message, when you listen to stuff online, always look for, that was interesting, what do I do with that? The second type of faith that James talks about is a demonic faith. What? Really? We're going to go there? I'm sorry, that's offensive. If we don't like thinking we have a pharisaical faith, we certainly don't want to think about having a demonic faith. But the reality is, is that James is actually in one sense saying that a demonic faith is actually a step up from having a dead faith. And then you sort of got to go, okay, well, what does that mean? What does it even mean to have a demonic faith? Scripture reveals Jesus had a lot of interaction with the demonic. He had a lot of interaction with evil spirits. And recorded in the Gospels are some of the things that the demon said to Jesus. And when you have a look at what they said... First of all, the demons believed in God. There's no atheists, there's no agnostics. The evil spirits recognised that there is a God. But they actually even went a step beyond that. Because in their interactions with Jesus, they recognised Jesus Christ to be God. The demons knew of the existence of a place of condemnation. They knew that their future is hell. And they also knew that Jesus would be the judge 
of that. And so there's four things that we can draw of a demonic faith. In verse 19, it says, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That word shudder in the Oxford Dictionary is to tremble convulsively, typically as a result of fear or revulsion. So these demons, these evil spirits, recognize Jesus with their intellect. But beyond that, they also had an emotional response. There was fear. There was revulsion. There was, you know what? I know that you are God, and I know that I'm on the other side of that, and I know what my future is in that. Let's go back to our car illustration. Your friend who's inherited the car. Not only have they had an intellectual response. It's red, it's two doors, it's four seats, it's powerful, it's comfortable. But now they have an emotional response too. They might sit in the car. They might be very thankful for the person who gave it to them. They might get out, they might stroke the car. Oh, you are the best car ever. I love you, car. Oh. Where's the car? Still in the backyard. It hasn't moved. The faith hasn't actually gotten into action yet. The car is still sitting in the backyard. Demonic faith may be a step above dead faith in that it interacts with more of us, intellect and emotion. But the reality is, is that it still has the same result. A demonic faith cannot save. It is only a living relationship with Jesus Christ himself that can save. How, can we, how do we know if we're slipping into a demonic faith? Well, just like slipping into a dead faith and we ask ourselves that question, oh, that was great, but what do we do with it? For those who have a tendency to slip into this kind of faith, they're in a church service and they might say something like, oh, wow, the presence of God was amazing. Oh, oh, thank you. But if we don't apply anything out of that message, we're still in the same spot. It's not enough to have an intellect-only response. It's not enough to have an intellect and emotion-only response. We need to have the third type of faith that James talks about, and that's a dynamic faith. You see, in a dynamic faith, it, en- it engages all of us. It engages our mind and our intellect. As we're here today and we're listening, we can hear what's going on. It's engaging our brain. Our heart can hear the truth and rejoice and say, thank you, yes. Yes. 
But more than that, it also engages our will. It also engages that point of going, right, I've heard, I've had an emotional response, but now I need to put something into action. The reality is, is that it's only a dynamic faith that gets the car out of the backyard. It's only when our will is engaged that we can actually use the car for what it was designed for in the first place. You see, it's not just a matter of how you think. It's not just a matter of how you feel, but it's a matter of how you think and how you feel spurs you to action. James gives two examples, the example of Abraham and the example of Rahab. You couldn't use two different examples if you tried. Abraham was the father of the Jews. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a godly man. Rahab was a sinful woman, a prostitute. Abraham was a friend of God. Rahab belonged to the enemies of God. And yet what did they have in, in common? That when Jesus or when God spoke to them, they put it into action, regardless of the cost. You see, for Abraham... He got called to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Now, Isaac was the fulfillment of a promise. God said that Abraham, Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And Isaac was the fulfillment of that promise. And yet God said, take a three-day journey and sacrifice him. Can you imagine the doubts can you imagine the, did I really hear God? Can you imagine the, oh, really? But, but, but you promised God. And yet the scripture says, very early the next morning, Abraham set off. You see, the test was, Abraham, I know that you heard me all those years ago about the promise. But are you hearing me now? Will you listen? And will you obey now? Scripture records that Abraham was going to do exactly what God asked. And then God, at the 11th hour, in fact, at the 11th hour and 59th minute, provided a way out for Abraham. But the test is always, will you listen now, not just from what you've heard before? For Rahab, she was in one of the cities in the promised land as the Israelites were coming through to take hold of what had been promised to them. A couple of spies came her way. Rahab believed that where she was, was the inheritance of the Israelites. She also knew that the king of where she was would kill her if she harboured the spies. Talk about being caught between a rock and a hard place, right? 
If we don't help the spies and the Israelites come through, we're going to be overrun. If we do help the spies and the king finds out, and the king did, he could kill us. And yet Rahab sent, hid the spies and sent the king's men off in a different direction. How different would it have looked if Rahab just caved? You see, it's faith and action together that, that brought about her salvation. Beyond that, let's look to the example of Jesus. I see no greater example of a dynamic faith than Jesus himself. As I read through the scripture, there's numerous times that Jesus is preaching, Jesus is teaching, Jesus is doing his thing. And then someone comes up who's sick or in need of help. And Jesus heals. A dynamic faith. Think about the four guys who are bringing their paralytic friend to Jesus. Jesus was teaching in a house. And the guys couldn't get their friend close enough to Jesus to get healed. So what do they do? Jump up on the roof and start tearing it apart. Can you imagine Jesus? He's there, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's telling about the kingdom as bits of roof are falling down. Remember, construction materials a little bit different then. So that roof would have contained manure probably. Falling down around you. And yet Jesus heals a dynamic faith. But there's a dynamic faith here on both sides because the four men that brought their paralytic friend needed to get him to Jesus and they weren't going to take no for an answer. And so the dynamic faith of the four friends put a paralysed man in front of the dynamic faith of Jesus Christ himself to be healed. How about the crucifixion? I, for one, am really, really glad that Jesus didn't come to earth and just talk about how we get to God. Because we couldn't make it in our own strength. It's why Jesus needed to come in the first place. It was the dynamic faith of Jesus that took him through the crucifixion. We are saved by Jesus' actions. It's by Jesus' actions that we have access to God the Father. It's this dynamic faith. How does a dynamic faith outwork? I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus gave us two scriptures. In fact, he gave us more than that, but let's just look at two. A dynamic faith is putting our faith into action. And Jesus said in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. What does a dynamic faith look like? It looks like love. The second scripture, Mark 10. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. What's a dynamic faith look like? It looks like taking the word and putting it into action. It looks like love. It looks like serve. In conclusion, as the band comes, our faith is a mark of our maturity. And James is showing us through this passage that a mature faith is one that acts. Martin Luther once said, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Church, can I encourage you today? Let's make sure that our actions meet our words. That we have a mature, dynamic faith. One that is shown in our love and in our service. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 